0: Three, two, one. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. It's your host, Jordo. And I'd like to extend a huge thank you to everyone out there for coming back and joining me here at Kuma House. My sincerest apologies for my recent absence on the show, but let's not waste any time and let's just get right back into it. At the time of conceptualizing the topic for this episode, it was a run of YouTube videos and docu-series on many different ancient civilizations that really got me thinking about how humans in the ancient past were able to defy what was thought to be possible. That they were essentially able to hack the laws of physics through their understanding of those laws and their use of simple machines. So the fact that the incorporation of these hacks into so many aspects of our modern day lives really just goes to show that the understanding of these principles is truly fundamental to the advancement of any civilization. This week on the podcast, we're going back to basics and discussing the concepts behind mechanical advantages and the simple machines we use to achieve them. Mechanical advantages allow humans to accomplish incredible feats things that would otherwise be considered impossible. But we can also use them to perform even the simplest everyday task much easier. As with every week, I think it's important to really define the subject of the conversation before we really get rolling. So how can we define mechanical advantage? Well, at its most basic definition, Uh, A mechanical advantage is the measure of the ratio of an output of a system as compared to its input. Let's build on this statement a little bit further to really cement our understanding of how these systems work. Although we most commonly refer to force when we're thinking about mechanical advantages, which is the amount of effort that we have to exert in order to accomplish any given task, the truth is that there are actually three different types of mechanical advantage that we can achieve, force being one of them, and the other two being speed and distance. I think it's also important to note that thanks to the law of conservation of energy, anytime we gain a mechanical advantage, we also have a loss in some other factor. To get a good handle on this, let's really start breaking down these ideas. What exactly is the law of conservation of energy, and just how does it relate to mechanical advantage? Well, the law states that in an isolated system, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change form. Let's think about some examples that we can use to better understand this law. How about something that we're all pretty familiar with? A light bulb. You provide energy to the bulb uh, by way of an electrical current. That energy is then released through a combination of both light and heat. The important thing to note here, especially when we're considering the law of conservation of energy, is that if you were to total up the amount of heat energy with the amount of light energy, the value would be equal to the total electrical energy that was initially supplied. Here's another example many of you may be familiar with as well Um, the use of petroleum-based fuels the chemical energy of gasoline or diesel that we use in our vehicles is converted to mechanical and heat energy through the use of the internal combustion engine just like our light bulb the sum of the heat and the mechanical energies achieved is equal to the initial value of the chemical energy stored in the fuel Now that we've got a bit of a grasp on the concepts of this law, just what exactly does it have to do with mechanical advantages? Well, when we're talking about gaining mechanical advantages, we're really saying that we want to accomplish some sort of work. Now, if you were to ask a scientist to define the word work, they would tell you that the amount of work that you perform is actually just the product of the force applied and the distance in which it is applied. In this context we measure the amount of work being done in a unit named the joule which itself is a form of energy. Starting to see the connection here? So knowing that um, the total amount of energy in a system will always remain the same, you can then understand that if we were to use some sort of device to reduce the amount of force required to complete a task, then the distance that would be covered to complete that task would have to increase proportionally so that the total output would still remain the same. Let's clear this up a little bit using a couple practical examples. Let's consider a lever. This type of simple machine is a prime example of mechanical advantage. If I were to ask you to roll a boulder on the ground, you could Really lean into it and physically exert a force on that boulder with your hands in order to move it. It would be quite physically demanding, but seeing as you are in direct contact with the boulder, the distance of the motion required to roll at, say, a quarter of a revolution would be more or less equal to a quarter of the size of the boulder. Now let's say you wanted to incorporate a lever. You could use a smaller rock or maybe a section of log as the fulcrum, or what we consider to be the pivot point of the lever, and then a large stick or a bar to act as the lever itself. Now to roll that boulder the same quarter turn would be physically much easier. However, the distance of the motion that would be required to accomplish this would be increased proportionally to the reduction in effort. What's another example to really show that even when you're using a mechanical advantage, there's not a gain without a loss. How about a ramp, or as the simple machine is more commonly referred to, an incline plane? Suppose you have a few heavy boxes, and you need to load them into the back of a tall truck. In our example here, you really just have two options. Option one is to lift these boxes straight up and into the back of the truck. Although the lift is a fairly short one, all things considered, the amount of physical effort required would be great. Now, if you were to set up a ramp, uh, you could slide the boxes up this incline plane. Uh, And though the path would be much longer, the amount of energy that you would physically have to spend would be greatly reduced thanks to the fact that you're not fighting gravity directly. Hopefully some real-world examples have helped to better understand the relationship between the different factors in a system and how changing one directly affects the others. Now that we have a bit of foundation under our belts, let's move on to today's conversation. Earlier I mentioned that there's actually three different types of mechanical advantages that we can achieve. Let's first get into that and discuss these different types. I want to to really give a good understanding of how each of these systems functions, what can be gained, and what also can be lost. First, let's look at the mechanical advantage of speed. A speed mechanical advantage shows the effectiveness of a machine um, at moving an object or itself at a greater speed than what is input. We don't always think of it uh, in this way, but sometimes we don't need a mechanical advantage to make our lives easier. Sometimes we require them to achieve something that is far beyond human capabilities. Let's take a catapult for example. We can compare a catapult, in a way, to the lever that we discussed earlier, with a few differences, of course. The mechanical advantage here is effectively being reversed. We are acting on the shorter side of the lever, and through the mechanical advantage, our speed has been increased at the other end, allowing us to throw objects at near superhuman speeds. Imagine laying a popsicle stick across a pencil. You put a peanut at one end and you tap the other end with a finger. The peanut will be launched through the air faster than the initial speed of your finger. This is exactly the same principle as the catapult. Now, throwing rocks and other objects at people we don't like is really not a great use of our advanced intelligence. But the way that we were able to achieve the end result is proof of our basic understanding of the laws of physics. Now, I know that you're what you're probably going to ask next and that's what's the trade-off in a system like this well if you remember our lever earlier we used mechanical advantage to reduce the input force required to move our boulder. Well if we're using the lever in reverse uh, for our catapult then I'm sure you can suspect that the fact uh, that in order to use this type of machine a very large amount of input force is required we would be fighting against uh, an amplified form of gravity, essentially. Though you may not notice it in the example of our peanut on the popsicle stick, as the overall weight of the object we're launching doesn't really justify the use of our, our machine here. As we scale up in size, the resistance from the other end of our lever will become much more evident. How about another example of a speed advantage, and something that's... A little more common by today's standards. Well a crank is a very common example of a machine that provides a speed advantage to a system and it's one that is still at large in our society today. An example of something that uses a crank? A bicycle. Your feet turn the crank and because of the two size changes the crank to the gear and the gear to the wheels the output speed of the wheels is much higher than that of your feet not only that but we can add in some extra gears to allow us a little more versatility when it when it comes to deciding just how much and which type of mechanical advantage we want at any given point in time however just like our catapult the system isn't without its drawback if you've ever ridden a multi-geared bicycle You've probably experienced this, like when you try and start out in a gear that's too high. The pedals are difficult to turn, and it really takes a while to get yourself going. This is an instance where the drawback is in the force applied versus the speed obtained. Now we can discuss gear ratios as well, where we change the type of mechanical advantage we're receiving, such as a greater amount of force to start the bike out or to climb a steep hill, but a little more on that later. The second type of mechanical advantage I'd like to discuss today is the mechanical advantage of distance. In the same way that the speed advantage allows us to move objects or ourselves at a rate of speed far greater than the one that we are inputting, so too does a distance advantage allow us to achieve a far greater distance output than our input. As with our last class of advantage, let's look at a few practical examples to better understand this concept. Let's again look to the gear for some clarification, or rather in this case two gears in mesh with each other. As you spin one of these gears, it acts upon the other one. Suppose the gear that you spin is double the size of the gear it's acting on. We would call this an overdrive ratio. Well, the amount that you spin the input gear will result in a much larger rotation of the output gear. Now, alternatively, if you reverse the ratio, the output distance will be far less in terms of the total amount of rotation of the output gear. This can also be considered an advantage as the difference between the input and the output allows for a more precise control. A set of gears that operate in this manner are something we refer to as an underdrive ratio. Something that uses this ratio that many of us are familiar with is in all of our vehicles attached to the steering wheel a lot of modern steering systems utilize a gear set known as a rack and pinion where the pinion is a very small gear that is connected to your steering wheel and the rack is a much larger gear that has just been laid out completely flat and connected to your steering tires at either end. Now there is another steering system out there known as the steering box however the internal functionality is quite a bit more complicated And the principles in regards to the mechanical advantage here work nearly the same. So we'll stick with our rack and pinion for this example. The amount that you turn the wheel only achieves a very small output to your tires. And if you can imagine how sensitive your steering would feel if the wheel and the tires matched each other degree for degree it would be far more easy to flip your steer- your steering tires completely sideways and cause your vehicle to come screeching to a halt. Not only is there a reduction in the distance traveled, but also in the output speed as well. We can spin the steering wheel quite quickly, all while the tires of our vehicle are moving at a much slower rate in the turn. This allows us to maintain more directional control directional control even at higher speeds where the slightest movement of the steering tires can have a drastic effect on the vehicle's direction of motion. So we can see that with distance advantage sometimes the goal of what we try and achieve is the opposite uh, of the input where essentially we want our output distance to be less than what our input distance was. Now another great example of a distance advantage comes in the form of a simple machine known as a pulley. Now let's imagine that you have a rope tied to a heavy bag of potatoes. If you need to lift that bag of potatoes up, don't you think it would be a lot nicer if the direction that you had to apply the force was with the flow of gravity instead of against it? We'll toss that rope around a pulley or essentially just a wheel hanging from above And voila, you can now use your own body weight in conjunction with gravity to be able to lift that bag of potatoes. Okay, I know that we're talking about the advantage of distance here. And although the distance that you move a rope um, in a single pulley system will be exactly the same distance that the bag of potatoes will move, I do believe that this still falls into the category Uh, of a distance advantage as the distance traveled by the bag of potatoes will be in the opposite direction of the distance you travel with the force applied. Alright, we got through the far less common forms of mechanical advantage. Now let's face it, most of the time when we think about gaining a mechanical advantage, we care far less about the distance that we've traveled or the speed at which we've traveled What we care the most about is how much effort it's going to take for us to accomplish any given task. Which brings us to the third type of advantage, the force advantage. Now, I know I'm starting to sound a little bit like I'm on repeat when I'm saying this, but the force advantage, like the other two, shows the effectiveness of a machine at taking the force that we apply and increasing it. Most simple machines that we're going to talk about have the primary objective of reduced force input. And we've looked at a couple examples of this type of advantage already. Like our first example, the lever that we use to move the boulder. And remember when I said more on the bicycle later? Well, we discussed what happens in a multi-geared bike while traveling in a gear that's too high for your current speed. But what about the lower gears? Well, they too have an advantage in the way of the force exerted by the tire. You may notice while riding in these types of gears that it's very easy to start moving or to travel up a steep incline that may otherwise prove to be impossible on a single-geared bike. The gearing of the bike allows us to input a little amount of force to the pedals, which results in a high amount of force outputted by the tires. This may also sound a little bit familiar from when we discussed underdrive gear ratios uh, when talking about distance advantages. And I'm trying to draw this link here uh, before we move on in order to really drive home the point that even though each one of these advantages has their own specific end goal, strictly by classification, really all aspects of mechanical advantages are related. We gain advantages in certain ways and lose them in others no matter what system we implement. It's at, the, it's at the end of the day really up to us to understand the actions and reactions in each system and choose the one that best suits us for the task at hand. Now that we have a handle on just exactly what mechanical advantages are, a little bit about how they work, and just a couple real-world examples, I think that now we should really dive into the different types of simple machines and how they work to give us our advantage over the laws of physics. Well, I think it's easiest to start with something that we've already discussed a little bit so far. The lever. Now at a baseline there are really four main components to any lever system. The fulcrum, which is the point at which the system pivots. The load, which is the object that you are attempting to move. The force applied, which, well, just like it sounds, is the amount of effort required from you to move the object, and the beam, which is really just a large wooden plank or a metal bar, maybe even a stick, that is acted on by the force applied in order to move the load. Even though the components of any lever system are the same, in truth, there are actually three different classes of levers. So how are these classes identified? And just how do they work? Well, the first class lever is one in which the fulcrum, or the pivot point of the lever, is located between the force and the load, much like in our thought experiment earlier when we were attempting to move the boulder. Another example of a class 1 lever that might help in the visualization a little bit better is a teeter-totter, where that fixed point in the middle of the teeter-totter is actually the fulcrum and the force applied at one end from a person is uh, attempting to move the load which is the person sitting at the opposite end of the teeter-totter. Now there's an equation that I won't really dive too far into today, but this equation determines the effectiveness of a class 1 lever. And to put it simply, the closer the fulcrum is to the load, the less force that will be required in order to move it. Inversely to that, The further away the fulcrum is from the load, the more force will be required in order to move it, but it will also move it a greater distance. Knowing this, you can now see why our teeter-totter is not really a very effective lever in either respect, because the fulcrum is neither close to the force nor to the load. So the next type of lever that we will discuss is a class two lever. So what exactly is a class two lever? Well, in this lever system, it's actually where the load of the system is located in the middle between the force and the fulcrum. A couple examples here are a bottle opener or maybe even a wheelbarrow. In a wheelbarrow, it's the wheel at the very front that acts as the fulcrum. If you've ever used a wheelbarrow, you would most likely have experienced that if you place more weight in the in the very front of the bucket, farther away from you, it will be much easier to lift the wheelbarrow and to move it around. Alternatively, the further back you place the weight, the more difficult things become. Plainly stated, the effectiveness of a class two lever is directly determined by the proximity of the load to the fulcrum. The closer it is to the fulcrum, the more mechanical advantage you achieve. The further away it is from the fulcrum, the less mechanical advantage you achieve. Now, how about the class three lever? Well, this one is a little more tricky to understand. A class three lever is one in which the force is located in the middle between the load and the fulcrum. So what's a good example of a class three lever? Well, one example that comes to mind is a fishing rod where the end of the handle is actually the fulcrum. The fish is then the load, and you apply the force in between these two points. So what are the basic principles of this class three lever? Well, it's that the closer the load is to the force applied, the less effort will be required. Let's take our fishing example. If you were able to hold on to the very end of the fishing rod, the one that's closest to the fish, it would actually make the effort required to pull that fish in much easier. So what's another example of this type of lever? Well, here's one that you're most likely more familiar with, the human arm. Now, when you bend your arm to lift something up, your elbow now becomes the fulcrum of that lever system. The load of the system is, well, whatever object you're trying to pick up, and it's actually the muscle in the bicep that's acting on the forearm between the elbow and the hand that's working to pull your forearm upwards. Now, although the lever is a very simple, easy-to-use machine that allows us to achieve a great deal of mechanical advantage, it's not the only one that we use. Another type of simple machine we use to achieve mechanical advantage is yet another we've discussed briefly today already, the pulley. So what exactly is a pulley, and how do they work? Well, simply put, a pulley is a rotatable disk that is mounted to an outer frame that we refer to as a block. The block is then attached to a structural component, such as the roof or a wall. We then use a flexible cord, a belt, or a rope to run across the disk, usually in a preset groove, where one end of the rope acts on the load, and the other end is where we apply our force. Now, if you were to say and try to lift a 150 kilogram weight using a single pulley system mounted by its block to the roof, well, that would require you to really use nearly 150 kilograms of force to do so. There's a small amount of mechanical advantage achieved through the use of a single fixed pulley system, however, the real fascinating thing about pulleys is that you can add in additional combinations of blocks and pulley wheels to gain even more a mechanical advantage from the system. The most common and simplest method of doing so is through the block and tackle method, where you would have a single pulley that's fixed to the roof and a floating pulley located at the object that you're trying to move. The rope then passes from the free end up through the fixed pulley system then down through the pulley that we've now attached to our object. From there, it goes back up and it's fixed to the roof. So every time we pull on the free end of the rope, it essentially must travel between the object and the roof twice. Now, as we discussed before, there is a trade-off. When gaining mechanical advantages such as this, in this type of system we would need to pull the rope about two meters in order to move the object off the ground one meter. However, This 2 to 1 mechanical advantage we would gain means that instead of applying nearly 150 kilograms of force in order to lift this object, it would only require about 75 kilograms of force to do so. Now remember the law of conservation of energy and how we measure work in an energy unit known as the joule? Well because of these facts and the equation that we discussed for work performed, the more rope and more pulleys you are able to add into the system, the more mechanical advantage that you will achieve. As the distance we are required to move will be increased, the amount of force that, we would be, that would be required in order to move it will be proportionately less. Don't believe me? Well, maybe you can believe the history books. It was in the third century BCE that a man by the name of Archimedes, who was a Greek mathematician, Uh, was said to have pulled large boats ashore using simple block-and-tackle combination pulley systems. Not only does a story like this show just how effective these systems actually are, but also that they have remained an an effective, efficient system throughout history and are even still in use today. Anywhere that large machinery is not permitted and human labor is required in order to lift and move heavy objects, you better believe that you'll find at least some semblance of a block-and-tackle system in place. Another simple machine that is very similar to the pulley system is the wheel and axle. Now many of us are familiar with this as it's present on our vehicles, our bikes, and any, uh, and many other modes of transportation that we have. The principles of the wheel and axle are dependent on the difference between the radius, or half the distance across the circle, of the wheel in comparison to the radius of the axle. This difference is expressed in a way that we have briefly touched on already in the form of a ratio. Let's break down the wheel and axle design in order to best understand its functionality. The wheel is essentially just a circle which is installed into, onto a, a smaller circle running through the center of it, the axle. Now, how exactly does this system provide us with mechanical advantage? Let's suppose you have a wheel that's 4 centimeters in diameter. That's the distance across the whole surface of the wheel. And, a, and that wheel is installed on an axle that is 1 centimeter in diameter. If we apply a force to the axle itself, it would result in a 4 to 1 ratio for the output. This means that there would be an increase in the speed and the distance traveled of four times that of the force applied to the axle. However, as we have discussed, there would also be a reduction in the output force of the wheel. Now, if we were to flip the ratio, applying the force to the wheel instead of to the axle, we would see the opposite to be true. A significant gain in output force with a reduction in speed and a reduction in distance covered. Let's look at a real-world example. Imagine, if you will, a little red wagon. The advantage here is made possible by a ratio we achieve through the use of four wheels installed onto only two axles. As we push or pull the wagon forward, the mechanical advantage that we gain allows us to transport large, heavy objects a greater distance with a great deal of ease, versus the alternative method of simply um, dragging it along the ground. We are not only gifted with the advantage uh, of a reduction in the amount of force that we need to apply to move this wagon, but the wheel has another benefit as well, a reduction in friction. Because the wheel is able to roll across the ground, there's far less friction than simply dragging an object. It's these advantages that allow, say, a child to head home from the park with a new collection of rocks that they wouldn't have had a hope of carrying otherwise, or that you or I would be able to move a large amount of chopped wood from our backyard to our fire pit without having to exert too much energy. So, the three simple machines we have covered so far today are actually pretty much based on the same principles. The pulley and the wheel and axle are both just essentially different forms of a lever. Some sort of change in the force applied uh, occurs and it either increases the distance or the speed as a result, or vice versa depending on how we're using those machines. But surely there are more simple machines out there than these, right? Absolutely. There is considered to be a total of six variations of simple machines. Much like the lever provides the basic principle for the other two machines we've discussed, Uh, the next machine so too uh, lays the groundwork for the remaining machines that we're going to discuss today as well. The next simple machine we're going to talk about, uh, we have already mentioned prior, it's the incline plane. The incline plane is a simple machine that consists of a sloping surface that achieves a gain or a loss in elevation over a distance. The mechanical advantage here is determined uh, by how steep of a slope that we actually have. As we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, the most common example of an inclined plane is the use of a ramp. If you were to have to lift a heavy object straight up, it would require a tremendous amount of effort in order to move the object a relatively small distance. Now, if you were to slide that object up a long, gently sloped inclined plane, the amount of effort required would be reduced substantially. Now if we were to gradually make this plane steeper, you would notice that the amount of effort would be increased accordingly. Though the steeper the plane becomes, the less distance you would need to travel. So I'm sure that you can see that depending on the task at hand, utilizing the principles of the inclined plane in different ways will be able to help you achieve exactly what you need. It's actually been stated that the most efficient form of a simple machine is, in fact, the incline plane. Now, The next type of simple machine that I'd like to cover is the wedge. Remember that I said the principles of the incline plane were related to these final two machines? Well, the wedge is simply just two incline planes that are placed back to back. We can use wedges to separate two objects from each other, to split an object apart into pieces, to lift an object, or even to hold something in place. So how do we determine just how much advantage we're gaining from these simple machines? Um, Well, the advantage of a wedge is really determined by the slope of the wedge as compared to its width. We apply force to the wider end of the wedge, and that force is transmitted and amplified at the narrow pointy tip at the other end. So although a short and wide wedge will accomplish a task much quicker than a long and narrow one, it's notable that the amount of force that you would be required to perform uh, would be greatly increased in comparison. So what are some examples that we can look into to best understand this? How about an axe? We use this wedge-shaped tool to split apart pieces of wood. Applying our own downward force to this wedge through the handle allows us to break apart the tight rings of the wood something that would you know, otherwise be considered to be next to impossible if performed by hand. There's also the basic wood-splitting wedge, which is where you would make a small cut in the wood, and you would take just a wedge that you would use a hammer to apply force to the backside in order to drive that through the wood and split it into pieces. Another great example of a wedge is a chisel, something that we use to remove and shape materials such as wood or stone. And the principles of the wedge allow us to do so with a relatively little amount of force required from the hammer. And that reason alone is why such precise uh, cuts and designs are able to be achieved with chival- with chisels because the mechanical advantage allows us to be more precise with the strikes that we we're making with the hammer without having to exert a large physical amount of force that we otherwise would have to in order to take material off of something like stone. With these examples I believe it's, it's really easy to see just how important this particular simple machine is to our current way of life. Now on to our, lec- on to our next machine. Another variation of the incline plane is the screw. The screw is our sixth and final simple machine for today. Mostly we use this type of machine to convert our rotational input motion into a linear one. The mechanical advantage of this machine is accomplished by spreading out the amount of effort required over a longer distance, thereby reducing the amount of input force required. Evidence of this type of machine can be found all the way back to ancient times. Do you remember our friend Archimedes? Well, he used a screw-type system as a form of a hydraulic pump, using its mechanical advantage in order to lift large quantities of water up to a higher point when required. Turning the screw mechanism captures water at the bottom, and it carries it up through a tube along the ridges of the screw. It is so effective that a large volume of water can be moved simply by one person. A more modern example of a screw is, well, I mean a screw. By simply turning a screwdriver, you can sink a screw into another object with relative ease. Another example, and perhaps one that better shows off the effectiveness of the screw, is a nut and bolt. We use them in so many applications to secure things together, um, to hold things down if you've ever tried to undo a tightened bolt with just your fingers I'm sure that you can understand um, just a, how much strength there is there but how exactly do even the smallest bolts achieve this well the screw in its most simple explanation is simply just a inclined plane that's been wrapped around a center post this increases the length of the incline plane drastically, which, as we learned earlier, increases its effective advantage. So, the fact is that if you were able to take the section of the bolt that is being fastened inside the nut and peel off the incline plane from the outside edge and stretch that out into a straight line, you would find that the surface area that is exerting the clamping force would be much larger than you would probably expect. So the finer the threads, essentially the more capability it has for clamping force. Uh, It's in this way that only a few bolts about the size of your fingers are able to secure a 15 to 25 kilogram tire onto your vehicle and keep it there even while you're traveling at highway speeds or that we can secure heavy heavy freight to a train and not have to worry about it toppling over as we go around every corner and through the mountains. I stated that one of the main advantages of the screw is its ability to convert rotational mos- motion into linear motion, but I think it's pretty clear now that another key advantage to this simple machine is just how much advantage we can actually achieve in a relatively small size. Now, there's just an abundance of information uh, surrounding mechanical advantages and the types of simple machines that we've discussed today so far. Uh, A lot of equations determining exactly how much mechanical advantage you're going to achieve from each one of these different machines, uh, as well as ways to calculate the different ratios that we've sort of discussed as well today. I didn't want to dive too far into that complexity, not in this conversation anyways. I wanted to start out and give everybody a fundamental understanding of exactly what mechanical advantage is and how some of these simple machines work and help us achieve that. I will leave in the episode description for today some notes regarding these equations uh, so that you can go out and do your own research and learn as much about these systems as you want. Now, as time has gone on, our understanding of the principles of these simple machines has only gotten better and better as humanity is concerned. We've even been able to start combining some of these simple machines into more complex ones. Let's take a pair of scissors, which, combine, which combines the wedge uh, through the use of the blade uh, with the lever uh, by the action of the handles acting on it. Or one that we've already mentioned today is the wheelbarrow, combining the advantage of the lever uh, with that of the wheel and axle. Now, understanding the concepts of these machines individually has allowed us to construct virtually all of the complex equipment and machinery that we see and use every single day around the world. I really hope that you feel like you've gained a good foundation of the simple machines and how we use them to achieve mechanical advantages. And remember, at the heart of all things mechanical are these simple machines. They're just combined in new and interesting ways to achieve better and more efficient advantages. And as our knowledge continues to grow globally, who knows just how we will be able to hack the laws of physics in the future? Well, it seems as though we've reached a good stopping off point for today's conversation. I mean, with all the complexity of things in our our modern-day society, cars, trains, boats, heavy machinery, and so much more, It's good to go back to fundamentals in order to really understand what's occurring inside these systems at their most basic level. I would like to invite you all to come back next week as we dive into another new and interesting subject. Our Instagram and our email are located in the episode description, so please feel free to reach out with any comments, questions, or concerns. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please consider liking, please consider subscribing, and definitely please consider sharing. We would greatly appreciate it. As always, keep asking questions, always keep learning, and have a great week, everybody.